This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Giuseppe Garibaldi, according to the historian A.J.P. Taylor, was the only wholly admirable figure in modern history. Born in Nice in 1807, his life's goal was the unification of Italy, and in large part thanks to him, Italy was indeed united substantially in 1861 and entirely in 1870. With his distinctive red shirt and poncho, he was a hero of romantic revolutionaries around the world. His fame was secured when, with merely a thousand soldiers, he invaded Sicily and toppled the monarchy in the Italian south. The Risorgimento was soon almost complete. We're discussing this now, as in October we asked you to suggest today's topic. This one came from David Rowe, James Rolls, John Raymond, Smalia Beris and Vinnie Cannon. My thanks go to them, to all of you, for sending in more than 700 and 50 good ideas. With me to discuss Garibaldi and the Sorgimento are Lucy Ryle, Professor of Comparative History of Europe at the European University Institute and Professor of History at Birkbeck University of London, Eugenio Biagini, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at the University of Cambridge, and David Lavin, Associate Professor of History at the University of Nottingham. Lucy Ryle, can you tell us something about Garibaldi's early life? Yeah, well, as you said, he was born in Nice, and his father was a merchant... Uh, Shipman, so he, they, he spent much of his early life in the Mediterranean, sailing around the Mediterranean. Um, you mean sailing around as a seaman, not sailing around for fun? Yeah, sailing around as a seaman, yeah. exactly. Doing work. Um, so by the time he was a very young man, he knew a great deal of the Mediterranean. And what else? Um, it was also there that he became politicised. Um, one of his jobs with his father was to carry a group of political exiles from France uh, to North Africa and he was converted to a form of socialism by them and it was in the Black Sea um, in a in the port called Tagenrog that he was converted to the cause of Italian nationalism by a Mazzinian, uh, one of a group of um, revolutionary um, young men working for the unification of Italy. Can you place Mazzini for us because he was a sort of not a father figure, only two years older, but he, he had some sort of control over Garibaldi, particularly in the early days. Yeah, I mean, Mazzini, yes, he wasn't much older, but he was a father figure, in a sense, to all of them. Um, Mazzini was a man who uh, made romantic nationalism, which hitherto had only really existed in literature and in poetry, into a political movement. Um, and he was also, I think, perhaps the most important thing for us nowadays is that he had an extraordinary gift for publicity. So he was the man who really spread the word of Italian nationalism and the idea of a unified Italy throughout Europe and particularly to Britain and made it as popular as it was. Because the media's come, coming up then, isn't it, very fast. We had the big reporting on the Crimean War and the American Civil War and so on. So this is later on in our story, but still, that's around and ready to go. It, it's starting in the 1830s and Mazzini uh, perceives its importance almost immediately. It's a moment of revolution, both in reading, people are becoming more and more literate, and also in print. Um, so there's more and more newspapers being print, printed with a wider and wider circulation. And he formed this group, the Young Italians, were they called? And, and we think that Garibaldi joined it. I think, yes, Garibaldi did join them in one way or another. And what yeah. did he do? What did he do? Um, he was essentially told by Mazzini to, or by Mazzinians, to join the Piedmontese Navy. And when the revolution broke out in, it well, was supposed to break out in 1833, he was supposed to lead a rebellion 
um, against the, the the Piedmontese navy, and um, yeah, that was that was there was supposed to be a huge revolution in Piedmont, which actually never took place. But he was he was sent into a, he was he went into exile. He fled because he was. Can you tell us why Garibaldi, at quite a young age, left Italy and for a very long time, for fourteen years? Well, he fled immediately to avoid arrest, and then later because there was a sentence of death imposed upon him because he was in fact a deserter from the Piedmontese navy. He went first to Marseille, um, and then in 1834 went to South America, landing in Rio. Really, the reason he went there, I think, above all, was money. Um, there was no money to be made in Marseille and there was a great deal of money to be made in um, South America. But once he arrived in South America, he got um, caught up with, again, a lot of Mazzinians who were already in exile in this extraordinary generation of Argentinian exiles um, who really kind of became also the founding fathers of modern Argentina. Um, and I think he might have spent the rest of his life there had it not been for... But he was, can we just stay there yes, for a absolutely. moment? He, he was involved in a lot of fighting guerrilla warfare there and we're told that he learnt a lot about guerrilla warfare, particularly there. Um, he learnt uh, about guerrilla warfare there. Um, he also learnt um, how to ride a horse, which was extremely important. Um, so, yes, South America was extremely significant for Garibaldi, but I actually think more than just the fighting... Um, was actually the way, the particular way he became politicised and the way he adopted in South America a very distinctive political style. What was that? It was that of the, the gaucho or the South American cowboy. So the image that we have of Garibaldi, the man with the poncho and the red shirt and the long flowing hair, that's really all developed in and borrowed from um, his uh, politicisation in South America. David Lamman, was he thought of as a, uh, as a good uh, leader of uh, guerrilla warfare? I, he, he gains an incredible reputation. And one of the striking things is, is this is a time when, when Italian nationalism is beginning to, to kick off as a, as a much wider movement within the different states of Italy, because, of, of course, it's completely disunited. And he gains this incredible reputation in his fighting in Latin America, and one of the interesting things about that is that Mazzini begins to recognise that in Garibaldi there is a heroic military figure. So from it's not that distance from uh, yes, across fourteen yep. years and across a yep. lot of sea. Yep, and from forty-three onwards, I think Mazzini, Lucy, that's right, forty-three. Mazzini begins to, to to think of Garibaldi as a possible person who can be exploited by the patriotic revolutionary movement in Italy. Um, as this sort of heroic, dashing figure, but also someone who has genuine military experience. Does he summon him back in 1848? Does no. Garibaldi himself want to come no. back to Italy in 40, 1848? Garibaldi starts thinking about going back to Italy before 1848. When he's in, he's in Latin America and news is coming across the Atlantic... And it's quite clear from 1846 onwards that there are changes afoot in, in Italy. In 1846, the key change is that a new pope has been elected, Pius IX, who is mistakenly believed to be a patriot pope, who seems to be a reformer, who seems to be someone who would like to see a greater degree of Italian unification. He picks up on the ideas of, of a Piedmontese political thinker called Gioberti, who says that Italy can be redeemed through papal leadership. Fuse that with an economic crisis, which is making people much more agitated. There are real problems, not just in Italy, but across Europe in the, in, in, from sort of 1845, 46 onwards. And it's clear that there is the possibility of political change. When Garibaldi actually sets out from Latin America, he's not quite sure what's going on 
in Italy. And actually, he arrives back in Italy a bit surprised to discover quite how dramatic and fast the changes have been. It's remarkable, isn't it, though, that, that Massini should keep an eye on him for 14 years. He hadn't done a great deal before he went, and, he's keep, and not only keeps an eye on him, but he's the man he wants to bring back. It's very, it, it isn't odd, but it is remarkable. Can but you just say a bit more about that? But it's not just Mazzini. I mean, it's interesting how this is percolating into the press. What's I mean, percolating? The, the actions of the so-called Italian legion that's fighting in, in these fairly regular conflicts. That are, Lucy, Lucy, I think, is probably the expert on this. I want to stay with you for a moment. But okay. the, the, Italian, the Italian legion is fighting in South America. Yeah. Yeah. And so he comes back in 1848... Uh, and ready for action. Yeah. What role did he play in that action? What was the action? Well, the first thing he does is is he he'd said I think in forty seven that he'd he, that he'd support anyone who'd bring Italian unification. He'd fight for the devil if the Italian if if the devil would bring Italian unification. And he offers himself first of all in a sense to the devil because it's Carlo Alberto of, of, of Piedmont who who has started fighting the Austrians. And Carlo Alberto basically says we don't want him. And then he looks around and he, he, he thinks of going to fight with the Venetian Republic against the Austrians. He ends up going to Milan, um, organises the defence of Bergamo, a smallish Lombard town, uh, ends up campaigning around Lake Maggiore. But the interesting thing about this is at that time, his, he is one of a number of volunteer leaders. What? Let's cut to Rome. When the siege of Rome was very important in the whole operation, what part did he play in that? Well, in November... 1848, Pius IX's Prime Minister, Pellegrino Rossi, is assassinated, at which point Pius flees Rome. And Rome becomes the centre of, essentially, of the Italian revolutions. It becomes much, uh, the centre of democratic revolutionary movements in Italy. A government is established early in 1849, which is the Roman Republic, with notionally under triumvirate, but really Mazzini is the driving force. And very quickly, the French, with their new president, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, who's the nephew of Napoleon I, send troops and to overthrow that republic. And Garibaldi ends up as the person who's in charge of the defence of Rome. And the defence of Rome, the French are expected to walk in and take it over like tomorrow morning. And he holds them up for three months. During that three months, a lot of reporters and writers who are penned into Rome say what a heroic figure he is fighting for unification. And this gets around and enhances his reputation massively. Well, first of all, he is heroic. I'm um, not sort of doubting it. I'm just trying to get a move on. And, 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 and secondly, he then retreats from Rome. And that's really where, he become, where, where the, the, I think the, the great myth of Garibaldi comes. Because Why is it a myth? Well, myth is probably the wrong word. OK, the great legend of Garibaldi is probably the best way of putting it. Because on his retreat from Rome, he's trying to go and help the Venetians. And one of the great things that happens in that, in terms of the reputation, is that his pregnant Latin American wife, Anita, dies. And so he's not just a heroic warrior, he's also the, the, the grieving widower. Nevertheless, Eugenio Biagini, he, he loses Rome, as it were. Um, he, is he still holding on? We put a hold on to this idea of, of trying to unify Italy at not all costs, but almost all costs. He's now on one side, now on the other. He's now a monarchist, now a republican. He's now for the peasants, he's now for the gentry, anything. It seems, from a, a reading, that he'll go almost anywhere to get his main goal. What were his political aims after Rome? What did he do after he lost Rome, as it were? Yes, it's a very good question because it follows on from what David was saying 
1849 is the defeat of the liberal revolutions throughout Europe, from Hungary to Paris and uh, everywhere else. But the remarkable thing is that Garibaldi was not captured or was not killed. So it is as if it becomes the hope, the revolutionary hope, or the democratic hope of Europe uh, surviving the odds. And of course, simultaneously, Mazzini made uh, was actually allowed to leave Rome um, undisturbed. So the, the focus on these two leaders, and particularly on Garibaldi, becomes increased by the general sense of defeat and despair. And it becomes, for the next generation, like the uh, uh, ongoing hope of uh, anybody who had invested in the idea of liberal and democratic reforms around the world. He said earlier on he was prepared to fight uh, for anybody who would be against the Austrians or for an Italian independence. But in fact, from the beginning, he's closely associated with democracy. To begin with, of course, he's born under the French Empire and there is a long tradition of revolutionary uh, propaganda and debate in the area. Second is politicized by Mazzini, who is committed to ideas of democracy from the start. And third, of course, the experience in Latin America is the experience in a country within which democracy is taken for granted, while everybody everywhere else in the world, except the United States and Switzerland, democracy was a bad word, was uh, up to... The 1870s were just unacceptable, like communism or Bolshevism for a later generation. So and basically, sorry. So Garibaldi was massively, massively popular in mind in America from early days. He's popular because of his association with this internationalist um, democratic mm. uh, campaign, which seems to know no boundaries and seems to embody these the French ideals of fraternité across national divides. In a way, part of his success is that he believes in it, consistently fighting for it throughout his life. We have to... Uh, Mazzini at this time is in London, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's escaped and he's settled in London and he settles in for a very long time and he swings the British Liberals behind the Italian unification cause. Correct. It must be said that the British Liberals did not need much help to be swung behind the Italian unification. A previous generation generation of Charles James Fox had been, uh, uh, been indoctrinated, so to speak, by Ugo Foscolo, who is, uh, was um, an Italian patriot and former Jacobin, who settled in London as well. And he, he, he basically he, he gravitated in the circles of Holland House and the Whigs, who were at the time, before the 1832 Reform Act, they were the focus on liberal political thinking. But uh, Garibald, as you say, disappeared out of Rome, and then he dis went into another exile. And we have four years of further what we could call exile, where he's seen here, there, and then he could in Liverpool and Staten Island, and then he works in the Pacific as a on a boat for two years, uh, and then come. Do we, is that is that significant in his life? Well, it is significant because well, it's, it's part of his life. But apart from anything else, it's significant. Yes, it is significant because it adds. Uh, a sense of global understanding to his career and to his commitment to, to, the, to the struggle for democracy he was talking about. The, the bane of the Italians was at the time, and perhaps since, parochialism, campanilism, a focus on, on, on narrow interests, locally defined. Garibaldi is the opposite from the start. First of all, he's a merchant seaman in the Mediterranean. Then he espouses his idea of global democracy. And, and third, during the second exile, he's exposed, further exposed to wider uh, influences. 
He seems to come back, Lucio, uh, and he comes back at very significant times. First time he comes back and goes for Rome, and second time he comes back in, uh, in 1859 in the Second Italian War of Independence. What brought him back then? Well, he was already back. He'd come back in the mid-1850s. Um, but I think you're right, actually, to point that out. I mean, I think there, was, there is a kind of idea about Garibaldi that he's a bit of politically naive and politically innocent. I don't think he is at all. I mean, he stayed away. He, he disappeared into the Pacific, partly to make money, but partly because he knew things had gone really wrong and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He comes back because he knows that times are changing. And, he, and, there, and it is no... Uh, it's not luck that he finds himself in 1858-59 ready there when, the, when things start changing again. So he's there, and he's backed by Mazzini, who's in London. So what are the other leaders of the unification thinking about this man coming in? He's not entirely backed by Mazzini by this stage. He's slightly broken with him, and he's trying to make a deal with the... the about this programme is there are 17 uh, states, countries trying to yes, get in. But yes. we will so get through. Yes. Complicated. It's complicated, absolutely. What he's trying to do is make a deal with the Prime Minister of Piedmont and the State of Piedmont to support Italian unification. And that's what he's really doing in 1859. But the problem in 1859 with this war that's breaking out is that the uh, Prime Minister of Piedmont Cavour, who is an important figure to remember, thinks he can use Garibaldi to whip up nationalist support and Garibaldi and the nationalists think they can use Cavour. So the scene is already set in 1859 for a, for a bit of a misunderstanding and political tension between them. The interesting thing, once again, is that he comes back after four years away. It's quite a long time, isn't it, in politics or anything? And he's been in the Pacific, so he hasn't exactly been in radio contact any <laughs> with what's going on. And immediately he's right at the front of it. Yeah, because partly by being away, he has carefully added to his myth. I mean, I think that we have to remember that there's nothing spontaneous about the legend of Garibaldi. It, it, its success is partly because it appears spontaneous, but it's actually quite carefully orchestrated by him and by others around him. How do you orchestrate something like that from the Pacific? Well, you can you can orchestrate it by by not being there, by disappearing, by being backstage, and you can have friends in America and in Europe who are writing articles in the They're press. You. you said earlier about the press. The press is there, absolutely, you know, um, uh, frantic for news of Garibaldi. I see, David David Lavin. Uh, so he comes back in, and then he there's the great um, invasion of Sicily with a 1,000 revolutionary troops. Now, he went there thinking he's going to be a martyr because there were supposed to be 100,000 troops defending Sicily. He took his 1,000 there. Why did he go? Well, there are a number of reasons. He'd already fought in 1859 alongside the Piedmontese. He's very upset because the, the, the Piedmontese hand over his birthplace and Savoy to the French in exchange for military support. And he initially thinks he's going to go and seize Nice, where he's actually just been elected MP. He's dissuaded from doing this hears about a revolution that's going on in Sicily and thinks he's going to hijack that. So he sets sail with two commandeered boats to try and land on Sicily and, and, and take advantage of the fact that the Sicilians are rebelling, which they do all the time against Neapolitan rule. He's very lucky. I mean, the, 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 this, this, incredible, this incredible year in 1860 is in part based on Garibaldi's skill and is in part based on good luck. He could very well have been sunk by well, the He could sunk on boats, but he wasn't, and he but, got there. And but, how did he win? Well, he won in part because the, the Bourbon forces in Sicily were completely inept. I mean, it's not just Garibaldi. He's a, he's a very able military leader. Sure, it's all in great odds. They've got to be very, 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 very inept. Well, you've got a 1,000 men initially. 
you've got a thousand men initially against about twenty five thousand, but he also whips up an existing Sicilian revolution against Neapolitan rule. So, Eugenio, you want to come in? Yes, the reason why he wins, just to expand on what David was saying, is actually that the Neapolitan, the, the army uh, or, the, or the king of the two Sicilies, feared the peasants more than they feared Garibaldi. So, for example, a Calatafimini, which is the key initial battle where Garibaldi could have been destroyed, only half of the available troops are deployed against Garibaldi. They are very good troops, but and they fight very well, but the key decision which should have been taken by any general to deploy the rest of the troops when the Garibaldians were in difficulty is not taken because they are guarding off the, the, the retreat of this army against the peasants who are surrounding the, the, the battlefield and sitting on the hills with their shotguns ready to jump on them if there is a, if there is a chance. So no. be a fear, fear of a revolution is what paralyzes the Neapolitans. You had your hand up, please. Well, I think there are two other things, actually. Uh, first of all, the... By, by May 1860, when Garibaldi arrives, the Bourbon state in Sicily has collapsed. There is no communication across the island. All of the local governments have collapsed. So it's kind of become a failed state in Sicily by this stage. And the second uh, reason, uh, it's not just about him landing. That is, as, as David said, partly to do with luck. But there is an in, uh, in the moment that he lands, there's an enormous groundswell of support. So volunteers are rushing in from all over... Italy, and actually from all over Europe by this stage. So the army is swelling daily with people. And, and, and one of the fascinating things about that is, is that you do get, I mean, I mean, British, Hungarian volunteers fighting alongside these red shirts. And, it, and it's part, I think, of, of, of this sort of internationalisation, that this is not just about creating a united Italy, it's about the possibility to make a fundamental change in European politics. But I think one of the sad things is, in a sense, that Garibaldi's desire to create a united Italy trumps the possibility to do something really interesting in the south of Italy. That, that, that Sicily, he makes himself dictator of Sicily and he resists Cavour's attempts to take over that revolution. But at the same time, his eyes are on the bigger goal of Italian unity rather than using, possibly introducing democracy in the south. Well, there are two things to be said following from what uh, David was saying. The first is that 1860 is the beginning of the undoing of 1849. He said earlier on, 1849 is the defeat of reform in Europe. From 1860 onwards, you have a series of decisive developments, first in Italy, then the American Civil War, which is the great turning point for democracy worldwide. Then, of course, there is the Reform Act in, in Britain, revolutions and reforms in um, uh, the Russian Empire, and so on and so forth. And it's not sur surprising that all these volunteers see the Italian battlefield as the, as the battlefield for global, this global idea of democracy or reform they have in mind. But the other thing to be said is that um, effectively as the, the possibilities of the options open to Garibaldi in Sicily were limited by the social context in which he operated. Social revolution was the one thing which would have destroyed this new wave of Republican or liberal or democratic reforms, and he couldn't afford it. Lucy, Lucy, is there a sense in which, uh, at this stage, he's moving 
there's an idea that you'll get unification and therefore democracy follows. Is the, does he have to choose? Look, I've got to go for unification even though democracy might follow. Well, that was the lesson of 1848-49, um, that they yeah. all learned, perhaps erroneously, that they couldn't actually have democracy if they didn't have unification because unification made them stronger. And that made all the Democrats... But Garibaldi in particular do the, this deal with liberal monarchical Piedmont, um, and I think it was a it was a grave error, fundamentally. Um, on whose part? On on Garibaldi's part and on those Democrats who what was, was with the him. Error? Can you clarify? I didn't quite get it. It was the error to think that they could actually uh, do a deal with Piedmont. With the, king uh, of with, the, with the King of Piedmont, particularly with the Prime Minister of Piedmont, who's the real power, mm. and then control him. Um, but, of course, once they've done a deal with someone like Cavour, Cavour, Cavour basically controls them. Very briefly, as Alexandre Herzen, the Russian populist, pointed out, the lesson of '48 was that political division did not make for military uh, abilities to survive. So survival on the battlefield standing up against the Austrians or the French was the key reason why all these people sacrificed democracy to unification. We're on the battlefield, Lucy, and he's won this glorious war, however accidental, and not accidental, but however much of a pushover it might have seemed later and later. But then he went there, sailed out. The world knew because the press was... Well, he was a hero. He's getting beyond any criticism, wasn't he? He was a living legend, that, that sort of thing. It then went, he took the Kingdom of Naples, and so he's got the south, as it were. What stops him just marching north and taking the lot? Well, that's a really big question that no-one has quite understood. It, um, it, partly he's under enormous pressure within his own party, some of whom are actually working for Cavour, to do a deal. Sorry, with Piedmont. With Piedmont. And partly because he thinks that uh, unification is the only thing that matters. So when the Piedmontese army marches south... He reckons that to come to agreement with them and, and actually unify Italy is more important and that the following year they'll actually finish off the unification of Italy and turn to democracy. They have this phrase, uh, it was Daniele Manina, Venetian um, uh, Democrat, who says, um, give us unity and we will get the rest. And they think they're going to get the rest after they've uh, unified Italy. But, but, it's, but it's a mistake because at the moment that he's given his army over to the king of Piedmont, he's basically lost his uh, force. I'd like to take one step back, though, here with David, David Lovin. He's, he's, he's got the south of, of Italy uh, and he's, he's having... Is, he, is his view of, of what he wants clear to them? Do they know what they've I, let themselves I, I in for? I don't think it's clear. And if you look at, as Lucy said, if you look at the, the camp of his supporters, they're incredibly divided too. I mean, within Sicily, there are people who want Sicilian autonomy. They're not Italian nationalists. They, what they really want is they get rid of the rule of Naples. They might have rule from Turin, but basically they want autonomy. There are, and, and they're largely centred in Palermo. There are people in the east of Sicily who so dislike the Palermitani that they're saying, actually, we want a much stronger national state because that will limit the power of Palermo. So these little internal divisions, which Eugenio has mentioned, which, which bedevil Italian politics, are already surfacing while he's dictator of Sicily. There are ideological divisions between federalists and people who want a sort of Mazzinian unified republic and people who say, let's do a deal with Piedmont. So I think there's a lot... For, for Garibaldi, who is much more astute a politician than many people give him credit for. Yeah, Lucy's pointed that out. But you? he's nevertheless faced with a remarkably difficult situation to manage in the South. 
And I think what he really wants to do is fight the wars of unification. Can we talk about this non-battle? Because the Piedmontese thought the only way to stop him getting to Rome and taking the, everything over from his point of view, Garibaldi, uh, which they, uh, was to send an army against him. Now, that battle didn't take place, but he met the heads of the and came to a deal. Can you just tell us about the deal he came to and what the implication of that was? Yes, you. Well, the implication of the deal, which was basically the leader of democratic Italy, as it was per perceived at the time, and the leader of monarchist and aristocratic Italy, as, as the king was, uh, met each of them on a horse, shook hands, and then the two armies marched together, although uh, uh, observers noted how sad Garibaldi looked afterwards. What did he give up? He was giving up, effectively, the possibility of establishing a democratic system in the South. But going back Why to did what, he give it up? I mean, he had, the, he, he had the momentum, didn't he? Going back to this point, let us bear in mind that at the time, democracy is really a very untested and untried political system. There are no democracies in the world except the United States, which is fighting a civil war, Switzerland, which is very small, and nothing else. So the idea he could establish democracy was rather... Uh, anachronistic. But I think no, we also need to recognise it. It was Garibaldi's greatest defeat. He was simply outmaneuvered by the Piedmontese and by Cavour in particular. He trusted um, Cavour and the king put that they would actually... In. Yeah, he put his trust in the wrong people. What he did do thereafter was, however, quite remarkable, is that he, he left on a ship... Um, from Naples back to his island home, looking extraordinarily heroic, with only, as the story goes, a bag of potatoes for his garden. So, you know, he leaves the kingdom with no having gained nothing. So what he does manage to do, which is extremely important, having suffered this serious defeat, is leave with his reputation not only intact, but uh, entirely enhanced. So the, 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 the heroic myth of Garibaldi as this kind of honest gentleman farmer that actually you started with A.J.P. Taylor, you know, the only honest man. It, it actually comes after having suffered this terrible defeat, being, being able to leave the stage with dignity. Well, I don't want to leave the stage yet because there's an awful lot of stuff to get through. David, you've got... Well, I, 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 and the point is that's a global reputation. When, when, for example, when he visits England in 1864, the biggest crowds that have ever been seen are for Garibaldi. Um, he, both sides in the American Civil War ask if he'll be a general for them. So, so it's not just that reputation is existing within Italy, but it's global, and that is going to help the Italian cause a lot. So he, he, he seems to come in, do something <laughs> extraordinary, decisive, changes things, then goes away again. Yeah, his, um, I think what people who were with him find incredibly frustrating is that he has absolutely no time for meetings and committees. He doesn't like that. He's not that kind of politician. He's one of those politicians who strikes a pose, uh, you know, does something great and then goes away again. I'm interested in what you said about him looking very sad when he came away from that meeting, which in fact was the, the handshake which led to the unification of Italy. In a sense, he's got what he wanted. Why is he looking sad? Because democracy was lost. But as I said earlier on, this was anachronistic at the time, certainly in Italy of all places. In fact, in America, uh, a civil war was going to start right then. Um, and the choices had to be made, whether the new state would survive or whether it would collapse into another civil war, which would have been devastating. The primacy of foreign policy is another dimension of his political acumen, which must be borne in mind. He realised that the major powers were looking on 
And although Austria was temporarily defeated and the Russians were sort of not involved, they could, they, the situation could change any time. It was important to grasp the opportunity and settle down the new state before something happened. We must make it quite clear that Italy at this stage isn't entirely united and there's Rome still and there's the Pope. Now, the Pope has been a difficulty all along. He hates Garibaldi and, more importantly, he's got the... Uh, uh, the following of Catholics, and the Catholics are huge, and also right across Europe, are against Garibaldi, I, because the Pope says they've got to be against I, Garibaldi. Now, how do they, they, how do they nullify the Pope? I, well, I think this is the key reason. If we think why the Piedmontese march south, it's not just to stop democracy. It's also to prevent Garibaldi possibly marching on Rome. That would have alienated Catholic opinion across the whole of Europe, but more than that, there is still a garrison, a French garrison, defending the Pope at that moment. So if Garibaldi had marched on Rome, he'd have been attacking the army of Napoleon III, and then the French, who are not entirely comfortable about the creation of an Italian state, could very easily have, have marched into Italy. They'd have defeated the Italian army with no difficulty at all, and you would have actually had a, a, a French-imposed territorial settlement in Italy. Just a little bit of background here. I mean, for the Mazzinians and for Garibaldi, um, the God is fine. They all they all believe in God. What they don't believe in are priests. And of course, you know, the worst priest of all is the Pope. Um, so the hierarchy of the Catholic Church is what they're so opposed to. Um, but then the other problem is, is that, as you said, their great rival in Italy is the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is a global force. So it's not actually that the Pope hates Garibaldi, is actually that Garibaldi hates the Pope because the Pope's really the enemy. It's, it's, and, and, and as time goes on, he increasingly argues that the real reason why Italy is not renewed, it does not become democratic, does not become this new Italy that they'd all dreamed of, is because of the corrupting influence of the Catholic Church. So the Church is absolutely fundamental to this story. Uh, very briefly, just to follow on, it, we should bear in mind that he does not necessarily hate priests. In fact, lots of priests joined the Garibaldi expeditions and army. The Catholic Church is not so monolithic as people may believe at this point in time. There are Cure Rouge, as they were in the French Revolution, that is red priests or Republican priests, throughout the period well until probably 1870, if not later. And of course, as soon as this oppressive understanding that the Catholic Church is incompatible with democracy is set aside, democracy within the Catholic Church can come to the forefront again. So it's not incompatibility in principle, it's that the Pope has been caught up in international politics and he believes his survival is incompatible with Italian unification. You, of course, absolutely right, Eugenio, but in truth, the rhetoric, the propaganda, is that it's the priests that are the problem. So it's that's as straightforward so as that. The Pope was the problem. Well, the priest and the Pope at the top of the priest. The I mean, it's the whole priest. Catholic hierarchy yeah. that's the problem. And yeah. what you have this, you rightly said... Italy's still not united. There's still Venice and Venetia and Friuli up in, up in the north, which is still part of the Habsburg Empire, and there is the rump of the Papal States with this French garrison protecting it. And I think the, the, the key thing with Garibaldi is that he's still thinking, what can I do to get those, those remaining bits? So there are conspiracies to try and attack the Habsburg territories, and twice in 1862 and 1867, Garibaldi makes attempts to seize Rome. And 1862 is striking because, yet again, the people who prevent him seizing Rome are the regular Italian army. He's wounded, and th there is a clash. I mean, the, the t it's a tiny clash, but the army comes in and prevents him. 1867, his troops actually manage to get into the Papal States, um, 
And the result of that is that the French army, which had briefly been pulled out, although they'd left people who were really French soldiers masquerading as, as, as volunteers for the Pope, the French army is summoned back and the French are putting down a marker, you don't touch the Pope. So uh, where are we now? 1867, I, I know, think. I'm big, I'm trying to think where to go now. So he's, but has he left now? Has he left the, has he left the field? Is he off to his... his up well, he's he spent... He's, he's put aside his... He's done the Cincinnati's. He's, he's done the Cincinnati's. his sword into a ploughshare, has he? He spends most of his time from 1860, other than this dramatic... These dramatic attempts to seize Rome in 1862 and 1867 and this extraordinary visit to London about which we could do a whole programme. Other than that, he's essentially on this little island off the north coast of Sardinia, uh, tending his farm, um, which I think has two effects. One, it adds to his myth as this gentleman Cincinnatus. Um, but it also functions as a kind of backstage where he can see people, they can come and go as they, as they please, and they can hatch all of this. You know, he builds a massive political alliance from that island. And of course, what that shows is that in the modern world that's being created in the 1860s, you no longer have to be at the centre of power to be powerful. So Caprera, which is the name of this island, is actually really quite significant for him. Eugenia, now that Italy is united and we're just about holding Venice, thank you, David, and the Pope has come on. Uh, what, what's their place among the nations of Europe? Does it, ha does it begin to exert itself as a national power? Uh, it does, uh, very rapidly. First of all, you must be bear in mind that when we speak of sovereignty, especially in this Brexit days, we should never understand, we should, never, we should always understand it was never full sovereignty. Um, for example, Italy was part of an international network of capitalist countries depended on international credit and so on and so forth. Having said so, it is much more assertive and able to uh, decide its own future than ever before, ever before for centuries, in fact. And it strikes very interesting international uh, uh, commercial treaties with various powers. Um, the political elite turns out to be quite sophisticated. For example, the 1863 uh, free, free Trade or Commercial Treaty with Britain the Italian um, diplomats outmaneuver the British, which is quite as extraordinary by any standard. I want to ask, I'll come to you in one moment, David, because a particular question I want to ask you, but how essential do you think, Lucy, was Garibaldi to the unification of Italy? I think it's impossible to imagine the unification of Italy without Garibaldi. Uh, I mean, the invasion of Sicily in 1860, the successful invasion, was the key um, to, to changing dramatically the geography of the Italian peninsula, but I also think uh, symbolically, so not just militarily, but also symbolically, uh, he is really the one figure that comes to stand for, signify Italy uh, for the whole for the whole world. Um, and it's his remarkable capacity for political mobilisation through the use of his, his, his figure, whether it's people rushing to um, join up and fight with him, whether it's journalists writing um, in favour um, of the unification of Italy represented by Garibaldi, or whether it's actually people giving money, because a great deal of um, money pours in, actually from England in particular. Um, all of this kind of popularity, this idea that the unification of Italy is somehow unstoppable, inevitable, that's in many ways unimaginable without Garibaldi. David, David Lam, now, do you think that the unification, that what he did turned out to be a good thing for Italy? No. <laughs> um, and this is where I probably disagree with the other two. I, if you just look at what... The, the, the history of the Italian state in the 1860s. The first thing is that almost immediately in the south, you end up with a horrible civil war 
They, they, they label it a brigandage, but actually you have a, a, a broad coalition of Catholics, of people who are loyal to the Bourbons. The Bourbons carry on fighting until March 1861. So there's a horrible civil war in the South, so that's no good. 100,000 troops. Yeah. 1866, there's a war to try and get back Venetia, where the massive investment in a new Italian fleet gets sunk by basically wooden boats commanded by the Austrians. So dreadnoughts are big, well, battle, battle cruisers, metal battle cruisers, steel battle cruisers are sunk by the Austrian fleet. Uh, humiliating, really humiliating. And while that war is being fought, what happens in Sicily? There's a rebellion against the new Italian state. So it I, doesn't work in the short term. In the longer term, though, briefly, because I think in, the other two in the are longer term, to get in. I, th- I, th- I think <laughs> it's very striking that, that, for example, when the First World War breaks out, the, Italian, the Italians are probably the least patriotic nation in, in Europe. Lucy? I mean, I think, I, obviously, David has been looking forward to this for three quarters of an hour because he didn't think Italy was, United Italy was a good thing. I think it was neither a good thing or a bad thing. I don't think it's really the role of historians to judge. It happened, and it's our job to understand why it happened. Time. But I would say about the civil war in the South that there was a civil war going on in the South before Italian unification, that they just inherited it. So I think this, this, the, it was a very nasty war, but that, it was one of the reasons why Italy was unified. It's one of the reasons why Garibaldi was able to walk in there so very easily, because there was already a civil war in there. Indeed. And not only in Sicily, but also in, in Latin, in, um, in um, southern Italy, the continental part of southern Italy. And furthermore, uh, the remarkable thing is the resilience of the new country, and the extent to which the separatist option was ruled out very rapidly. David was referring to a civil war. In fact, it is a social war, because the elite abandoned the um, monarchies, the, the Bourbon cause, almost immediately. All along the line, the army officers, the navy officers, who were in the Italian navy, at least they are former Bourbon officers, and indeed the civil servants, only the peasants are left on their own for reasons which have nothing to do with the Italian uh, unification. It is about resistance to the, to the draft, it is about taxation, and it is about disappointment with lack of democracy in Palermo particularly. But sorry, so David, there isn't even time for a full stop. I'm very sorry that. Thank you very much to you, David Levin, to Lucy Ryle, to Eugenio Biagini. Next week we'll be just talking about Harriet Martineau, one of the most prolific and influential writers in the 19th century, and by, called by some the mother of sociology. And thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Would you like to hear something about the way the new state was organised? Yeah, anything you want to say. Well, uh, to begin with, it is a constitutional monarchy. It has um, a parliament consisting of two chambers, a senate appointed by the king and a chamber of deputies elected on a property qualification, which is quite restrictive, about 418,000 electors in 1861 out of 22 million people which is however... 22 million. 22 million, which is 8% of the adult male population comparable to the electorate in Belgium or France at the same period. Below Parliament, there is a pyramid of representative government. The main institutions are the provinces and the communes or municipalities. Each of them has its own council elected, elected on property qualifications, but interestingly, uh, on a lower qualification. So you have only five lire per year as a, as a, as a, as a tax uh, requirement to be an elector for lo- small community in contrast to 40 lire per year 
for the for the parliament. And the system is basically the same ever since. That is why it may be relevant in the run-up to the referendum at, 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 at the weekend. Oh, good. Can, can, we can, can say relevant on this. We're not, I don't, we, we don't like relevant on the main programme. Can, 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 can I cut in there, though? You, you've said about how the Italian elites immediately buy into this new state. For 500 years, Italian elites have been buying into new states. They want to defend their own position. So what happens when there's a change in regime, when, when, when Napoleon arrives or, or when, when, when the Austrians arrive, the elites get on overwhelmingly with collaborating with those new states. And I think what we see with Italian unification is not that suddenly all these elites are converted to Italian unity. What they think is, that's the new order of things, we get on with it, we're not going to kick against this because we'll have Piedmontese Bersaglieri kicking down the front door, we want to keep our lands, we want to keep our positions of authority, we want access to government power and patronage, and therefore we buy into the idea of Italy. The peasants are the people who remain... as who suffer invariably in these situations. And I think the great tragedy about Garibaldi is what he did in 1860 was there was the chance, but even when he's in Sicily, he's already jockeying, he's he's thinking, you know, I I could play the peasant card, but actually the gentry are going to be more useful for me. And I think Garibaldi sells out. I disagree with that. Not only the elite buy into it, but in fact the working class do. The next challenge of the state does not come from separatism, from the Socialist Party. And that is where, from then on, the challenge to or the demand for social reform or justice has has, has proceeded from a unitary political organisation of the left, which is now fragmented as it is in many other countries, but up to the 1990s was strongly dominated by national political parties, the Socialists and the Communists. Can we actually go back to the point about the peasants being sold out by Garibaldi and actually about the elites? Because I think you've both got it wrong. Um, first of all, actually, it isn't that he sells out the peasants in 1860. It's that actually it's impossible, in a way, to integrate them into the, the event. I okay. mean, wherever, where do they do that? Anywhere in Europe in this period. There's, there's nowhere where they do this. The peasants are screwed, if, if I may say that, on the yeah. BBC throughout the this 19th century. This is not quite BBC. This is BBC this is Plus. podcast, so it's OK. Yeah. I, I, I no, no, can didn't I, can use I, the word no, screwed. No, 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 no. Can, I, can I finish, actually? Um, and, uh, you know, what the lessons that they had learned from the 1820 and the 1848 revolutions is that if they actually allow the peasants to take part in social revolution, the elite abandon uh, the revolution and they're terrified of that. But Garibaldi actually does try to introduce a really sweeping measure of land reform. It doesn't succeed because they actually don't have the bureaucracy to implement it, but there is actually a willingness um, to... to uh, benefit the peasantry and to integrate the peasantry into the southern army so I think that's actually wrong, I think that's a kind of southernist myth that you're actually spouting there David, but the second thing I'd say actually about the elites I I think both of you have underestimated the difficulty of integrating the elites into the new system actually one of the problems is is that you know the Tuscan elite the Neapolitan elite, the Palermo elite, the Umbrian elite, they don't actually really want to have anything to do with the new Italy. And in order to integrate them into the new political system, they have to be bought off. Thereby you get corruption and clientelism, which in many ways is the bane still of Italian political life. This is very striking because in, in Venice, for example, which is the city I work on, the elites, after unification, it's almost impossible to get anyone to stand for Parliament. They, 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 they tolerate the new system, they do quite well out of the new system, but they won't 
buy into it. And it's not really until the 1880s, 1890s that you get Venetians who are prepared to actually stand. Now, about the elite, it's interesting, um, that perhaps to look at across purposes, there is the development of a bureaucracy, which is national, consisting, for example, of school teachers, consisting of employees or, or clerks in, in local administrations, and consisting of police officers, uh, and, and a totally new career pattern of social mobility opens up in this way. They are the elite which bring the country together. And let us remember, in 1914, 1915 to 18, the country fought the First World War quite successfully without disintegrating. It disintegrated, paradoxically enough, after 20 years of fascist regime in 1943, for totally different reasons. Yes, I mean, I think that you're right, actually, Eugenio, to point out that the fact that despite all of this bad reputation, um, the Italian state survives and continues to survive, and that's actually very important. And also that there is this kind of negative narrative about Italy and United Italy, which is a very easy narrative. It's very, very easy to say what's wrong with Italy and much more difficult to say what's right with Italy. But in this kind of rather shoddy world that emerges in 1860, there is one person who continues continues to survive or emerge with his reputation intact, and it is Garibaldi. Um, and it's that's really one of the most remarkable things about him. And indeed, again, to this day, um, Garibaldi, it's very difficult to say anything bad about Garibaldi. When I wrote this book um, trying to show how his reputation was artificially constructed, people were extremely hostile. Um, and, of course, what you have in the 20th century, which is an incredible testament to his power, is you actually have two Garibaldis, at least two Garibaldis emerging as a kind of myth of, in, in Italy. One is the fascist, monarchical, right-wing Garibaldi, and the other one is the left-wing, sort of socialist, republican Garibaldi. Yeah. It's so, not for nothing that the, the communist partisans call themselves the Garibaldi brigades. In the Second World War. In the Second World War, yeah. 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 Well, I think we're garibaldi up. <laughs> Thank you all very much. The second time, you're being offered offer you can't refuse here. It's tea or coffee, and we don't <laughs> There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.